0: Good morning. Today's scripture reading comes from Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 through 15. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, three men were standing in front of him. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She is in the tent." The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Mm-hmm. Thanks be to God. What a fitting song to sing this morning. It is well uh, with my soul. Given the uh, really the, the the crazy week we have had, <clears throat> as we watched events unfold this week, uh, whether you're watching on television or online. Uh, I hope you're able to watch my uh, just video update this week. I thought for a couple days, didn't want to have a knee-jerk reaction response the day or next day, but just to think for a couple days. Uh, if you weren't able to watch that, go look at our, um, you can look on our social media or the ultra Gmail you got this week, you can find some thoughts there. But I know we're all processing and thinking uh, how to respond and how in our personal lives and in our hearts and as Christians uh, and as citizens too. How to uh, respond to the unfolding really tragedy of the attack on the nation capital, which um, resulted in deaths of of five people? What kind of thoughts ran through your mind this week? As you think back on your week, did you think thoughts of maybe of our nation collapsing much like the fall of Rome when you saw uh, some men scaling the walls of the capital? Did you think about what the nation will be like for our children? And your grandchildren, what kind of world will they inherit? Maybe you were somebody who were kind of uh, waxing nostalgic as you thought about former days and times of peace and civility between neighbors and friends and political parties that doesn't exist anymore. Or did you think or say, maybe you did regretful things as you think back, if you thought or maybe said regretful things about the other side, whatever that may be for you. Did you wonder, as I did, what is God up to in the middle of this? That is the thought I want us to sit in this morning. What is God up to in the middle of this? Because God, as we're going to see in our story today, He loves to work His mightiest work when a godly outcome, a godly answer, seems the furthest away and impossible. In this strange encounter this morning between Abraham and Sarah, and the heavenly visitors who are these guys that come to see them we're going to get to see an unusual display of intimate fellowship feasting and the un- omniscient annunciation speaking out of this promised child again and we're going to answer the hypothetical question is anything too hard for the lord the hypothetical question that abraham posed to or excuse me god posed to both abraham and sarah is anything too hard for the lord can God make a way for his people when it looks like there's no way forward? Can he glorify himself and promote our good when things look this bad, whether it's Abraham and Sarah or our world today? Well, he did for them. He did for Abraham and Sarah. So let's look, we're going to look at the feast today and the fulfillment. The feast and the fulfillment. So let's start with the feast by looking at this, that the God of the covenant in this feast, comes near to Abraham and Sarah in an intimate meal. In an intimate meal, this God of covenant comes near to this chosen family. You know, as we think about this visitation, the days are kind of gone where we're not really so thrilled with surprise visits anymore. Somebody just popping in. When we get a ring at the doorbell and somebody comes over, a pop-in visit, we, oh, come on in, look who's here, come on in, join us. We loved kind of having in maybe former days, visitors just sort of pop in and we would do that quite a bit more. Get together some food and a snack and visit and, oh, we're going to, let's chat and catch up. Nowadays, we kind of like, what do you do? You peep through the hole like, you kind of, somebody, somebody knock at the door, who's here? You look out the curtains, you know, no. shh, you know, shh, somebody's at the door. Well, imagine old man Abraham here. He's 99 years old. Sitting by the door of his tent. Moses writes for us in the text. Maybe he's dozing off in the heat of the day. It says it's the heat of the day. Maybe he's taking a lunch break from the daily chores. And he gets a pop-in visit that's unimaginable. Absolutely surprising. And who was it? As we're going to see... God has just popped in. God has just come. God has just stopped by for a chat with a surprise visit. uh, One of our verses here says Yahweh appeared. Yahweh speaks. God has come to visit Abraham. But the text tells us three men appear. Three men appear. You know, we get more detail here on the divine appearance than we do in a lot of other places. Who were these men? Well, it seems, and as most, most commentators and scholars of the Bible think, that one was God appearing. Somehow, some way, like a man. Some have maybe even conjectured the pre-incarnate Christ appearing. But it's a theophany is the word, an appearance of God, probably appearing with two angels. As we know as the story continues, two angels are going to go on to Sodom in a couple of weeks. But this other one, is a strange figure that is described as Yahweh. And as he, these three men appear to Abraham, what is his response? Let's look at God, having God over for dinner, how this prompts a major act of hospitality for Abraham. Major hospitality. Now, I don't think Abraham knows right away that God is appearing here. We're not quite sure, but I, I don't think he knows exactly, but he knows that they are important guests. And he actually even treats one of them more significantly than the other two. So he knows something is going on here in this pop-in visit. He, he runs to greet them. That's one of the ways we know. Old Testament men did not pick up their robes to run out to the driveway. They just didn't do that. You just see how it looked right there, right? You don't do that as an Old Testament man. They didn't do that. Think prodigal son returning home and the father running out to meet him. Same thing. When they run, it's a big deal. And he runs and he bows to one of them and calls one of them Lord. And that term Lord there could even be a term used for God or worship. So at the moment at least, when Abraham goes to greet the three guests, at the very least, he knows something rare. Something special is happening in this pop-in visit. Something unique. And he says to them, look at verse 3 with me. And, uh, O oh Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. He clearly understands there's something otherworldly going on here. And he quickly pulls together a feast in hospitality, with, as we said in our pointer, with some major hospitality. He becomes the, the chef in the kitchen, giving orders to prepare a feast. And the text implies a quick haste here. It says, quick, Sarah, bake some, some cakes, some bread, some loaves. Quick, roast the best calf. Hey, guys, kick, kick off your, your shoes. Put up your, your feet, and let's get you cleaned up a little bit. Kind of like, you know, think of Carson from Downton Abbey back in the kitchen going, here, go, here, here, go, here, go. That's what we got here with Abraham, making sure the feast is ready for the nobility something to drink, wash up, bread, and and meat. And it's a lot, actually. It's a lot for these three people because we even get the amount there. It's way more than what three people would need. I think there's a call here for us to remember godly Christian hospitality. It's not the main point of this passage by any means. But it's clear, even as the writer of Hebrews comments on Abraham's hospitality Here's the verse from Hebrews 13, 2. We see it popping up. We got that slide coming. There it is. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. That's kind of what's going on here. Abraham is showing a hospitality, and the writer of Hebrews picks up on that in the context of Hebrews 11, 12, 13, where he's talking about all these people of faith. One of the things I'm concerned about um, post-COVID, and you probably are too, is that we'll all have gotten really used to not letting people in our homes, and we'll cease to do it. And actually, think back to pre-COVID days. Maybe you did, maybe you didn't, but the question is good to ask, did you pre-COVID days, did you used to invite people in your life over to your home, whether from church or other people in your life? And maybe not even those you know best, but just someone you want to get to know or help or, or feel welcome at church. Did you do that? Sometimes I think in the, home, in the church we've set up our homes too much as, as, as havens from this scary world to kind of bunker down in, you know, we get a ring on the doorbell, what, did you invite somebody? Did you invite somebody? What? This, this haven from the scary world. When I think it's to be more like Rosario Butterfield said in her great book, it was the gospel comes with a house key. She said this about hospitality. Those who live out radically ordinary hospitality see their homes not as theirs at all, but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of his kingdom. They open doors. They seek out the underprivileged. They know the gospel comes with a house key. Let God use your home, she goes on, apartment, dorm room, front yard, community gymnasium, or or garden for the purpose of making strangers into neighbors, and neighbors into family. Because that's the point, building the church and living like a family, the family of God. As we think in gospel terms, when God has opened the door of his house to us by gracefully adopting us into his family and his house, how can we keep our door closed to others? How can we keep it shut from the stranger or from others in our congregation who don't know, we don't know or, or who aren't well-known in the congregation? And some might say, well, I'm just an introvert and, and a homebody. I can't do that. You know, that's just too hard for me. Well, personality type doesn't excuse us for ministry. It just means that the introvert has to prepare differently than the extrovert does to, 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 to fellowship. he just got to prepare differently. And Abram, Abraham does it. The three men sit to eat, and he stands by in the place of a servant, a butler <laughs> in hospitality. Why does this matter? Why does hospitality matter? Here's why. Because we'll see in the text, God partaking in the meal Gives a peaceful reassurance to Abraham and his family when God eats the meal with him. We all know that something unique happens when we sit down to share a meal together, doesn't it? Something unique happens. It's why many times we say, well, you know, let's meet over a cup of coffee rather than say, hey, let's meet at your front door. I'll stand there, you stand there, or, or let's meet out on the sidewalk and chat. No, we know that's, you know, sometimes we have to do that, that's all we got. But no, we say, let's, let's meet for coffee or let's, let's grab lunch. You know, there's been dozens, dozens of studies done over the last 20 years or so about the family dinner table. Dozens, tons of studies. I'm not just talking about about Christian people, just all kinds of people have done these studies. And how a family that makes time for a family dinner and a priority to sit down weekly or or, uh, daily as much as they can, the more they do that, the better the outcome is in children's behavior, grades, even obesity amongst children, not to mention spiritual development. you know it's sad, only around 30% of families find time to have dinner together regularly. Something happens when we sit down together to share a meal. That's why hospitality matters. That's why it pops up in this story here. Now imagine God, how this looked and how, I mean, it's so hard for us to wrap our mind around. God appears there. Now imagine God at the dinner table with Abraham. Or imagine Jesus eating cooked fish by the fire with his disciples. Or imagine the marriage supper of the Lamb, Revelation 19.9, says this, Blessed are those who are invited, brought in to stand and talk on the sidewalk. No, that's not what it says. It doesn't. No, to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's rich with feasting imagery. Rich. Rich. What would that be like to sit with Jesus and share a meal? To ask, hey, Peter, pass the rolls, right? To feast in the pure joy of of drinking the wine of heaven as we worship the vine that he speaks of again. I don't know, but I want to be there. I want to be at that feast. Because something happens uniquely and special when we... together, And I want to be there because God will be there. And he's here at this story with Abraham. Think what intimacy and unreserved familiarity God is willing in this moment with his servant to give him. The familiarity God gives to Abraham and Sarah here. Was he worried about the promise of a child to barren wife? Well, you know what? I'll visit him again. And I'll sit down with him again. And I'll say it to him again. And I'll make sure Sarah hears it too in a really clear way this time. You know, the phrase is familiarity breeds contempt. Have you heard that phrase? Familiarity breeds contempt. But here, God's purpose is that familiarity would breed intimacy. It's our next subpoint there under this feast. Familiarity actually breeds intimacy here. This isn't just a a communal meal here now. God's got a purpose, as he does in everything. As he sits down with Abraham, and, and Sarah's there too, and these other two men, probably angels. It's not just a communal meal, like we might talk about with hospitality, but it's to be an intimate moment for these few people, where God would guarantee again to him the covenant of having a child to bless the world. You might say it's like a ratification, a reassurance, a a putting into place the covenant, a ratification of it. Meals were used for that a lot in the Bible and in ancient cultures. And we still use meals today. Think Thanksgiving. It's like a recommitment, a ratification of the family friendship bonds. And if you think about it, Actually, the entire Old Testament, most of their sacrifices and rituals are symbolically tied to doing what? Eating and drinking. It's all over the place. Again, I thought even about us taking the Lord's Supper again today. Because what do we do? We eat and drink. The Lord's Supper. Or how about this beauty? Look at this one here. Matthew 19.5. The verse says, And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, you remember this story, Hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. And Jesus had a meal, and what did he do? Did he just say, "Hey, Zacchaeus, thanks for letting me come. It's been real good. It's so great." No, that goes on to say this in verse nine. We see that one coming up, guys. As a normal, and Jesus said to him, "Today, salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham." To eat with the Lord and his presence, is to be one of his own. Jesus didn't just say, hey, later Zacchaeus. No, he goes, salvation has come today as we sat down and feasted together Zacchaeus. And a son of Abraham, no less. Isn't that interesting? May we think more about our hospitality, uh, the ritual of food and what it means, and our call, your call, to be close with God's people and with God. In intimate exchange, which happens in this feast, this strange, weird setting where Abraham and Sarah cook a meal for God. Well, there's a purpose to this meal. There's a purpose to this feast, as I've already said. Let's take a look at it now in our second and final point today. God gives in his purpose here the details and the guarantee again for this couple of delivery. I guess you could use that word in two ways delivery of a baby and delivery in salvation. But he's got a purpose here. And God is so gracious to repeat the promises again and again and again to the chosen family. But somewhere in the midst of this meal, they come to Abraham and they ask him, Abraham, where's your wife? Where's your wife in all of this? Where is she, Abraham? And at this point, Yahweh speaks. Look at verse 10 there. Whenever you see the Lord capitalized in your Bible like that, L-O-R-D, it's speaking of Yahweh. In verse 10, the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door Behind him. Now, here at this moment, if they didn't before, the lights must have gone on for Abraham and Sarah. The lights had to have been like just flicked on for them. Have you ever had that happen? Lights kind of flick on in a moment. All of a sudden you recognize someone. You're like, oh, oh, it's you. I was walking this past week back on Holly by the Dahlia Fields and I passed. um, Susan Burkett from our congregation. Maybe she's watching, streaming at home online. And I just passed her. and We were walking. She was on one side. I was on the other side of the road. And I had a hat on, and she had sunglasses and a hat. And we both kind of politely waved. Hey, you know, just kind of passed each other. It was 50 steps later that I went like, "Oh, that was Susan." I had one of those kind of light flashing on moments. It kind of dawned on me. Well, with Abraham, imagine here when he hears, "Where's your wife?" Sarah. How does he know her name? How how do you know my wife's name? And then he speaks and says, I will return to you, I will visit you, and I'll give your wife Sarah a child. Well, if he wasn't God, then he's got a pretty big issue with this man, doesn't he? (laughs) Next year, Isaac will be born. He probably was absolutely floored in this moment. Much like the men on the road to Emmaus. Do you remember those guys when Jesus reveals himself to them? They're with him after the resurrection now. They're unable to recognize him. And again, he eats a meal with the two of them again. Look at the verses from Luke 24. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it. And he gave it to them and their, their eyes were opened. And they recognized him. And then he vanished from their sight. What was that like? They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road when he opened us the scriptures? An appearance over a meal where the light went on like that. And here we've got it with Abraham and Sarah too. But Sarah's not so sure yet. She's not so sure yet. And we can't blame her. We can't fault her. Abraham has had his own falters of faith, hasn't he? And he will again pretty soon in our story. They're old. They are old, the text says. They are advanced in years, to put it nicely. And Sarah laughs to herself now. But let's look at this laugh, and let's look at the fact that God knows a disbelieving laugh is really the story of our sin. Come on, God. We're both so old can I really bear a child at my age? It's not possible. It's physically impossible. Now here's the story of our sin. Well, Abraham laughed last week in the hilarity of the impossibility mixed with belief. We called it last week the touching symbol of faith struggle when Abraham laughed. But here we know that Sarah's is mixed with a bit more unbelief because God acknowledges it. So either at this point, Abraham either hasn't told Sarah the promise yet, or at this point, she doesn't quite buy it yet. I hope it wasn't the former. If it was, then it's Abraham's fault. But it seems that more likely at this point, she was still really struggling, and understandably so, since she'd be the one that would carry the child at 99. 99. So right now, the two spouses didn't, either, didn't see eye to eye on this one, and they were mismatched in faith right now. They were mismatched. And he says, why did Sarah laugh? Again, proving his omniscience, that nothing can be hidden from his eyes, even if you laugh to yourself, and Sarah denies it. Look at verse 15. But Sarah denied it, saying, I didn't laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. Whoa. (laughs) And there the story just ends. The story just ends there at that point. He sees inside her, oh, no, but you did. And isn't this the story of our sin? Last week we talked about sin as a self-manufactured solution to not believing the promises of God. Well, this week we'll say that every sin is really a disbelieving laugh at God and His promises. Every sin is a disbelieving laugh at God and His promises. When we don't obey, it's sort, of a, it's sort of a silent laughter at God's promises. You say this is good for me? Ha! I say this is. You say that humility is the way? Ha! I say self-assertion. You say I'm limited? Ha! I don't want to know any limitations. You, don't say, eat, you say don't eat that tree? Ha <laughs> I want that tree. Isn't that the story of our sin? It's a silent laughter that's dismissing what God says is true. And God has been watching it over and over in the course of humanity play out since the garden. And here's a point for us to take away from this passage. You know we can fool others. We can fool others. I've done it myself, but God knows He sees all our thoughts and words. If you knew some of the thoughts I've had in my life, you wouldn't want me to be your pastor, let alone your friend. How about God seeing our thoughts? We can laugh inside. We can keep our sin hidden. And oh, the terrible things we have laughed internally, right? Right? the sin of our hearts that we keep hidden, but we can't keep it hidden from the eyes of the omniscient God. And Sarah couldn't on that day. David, what did he say? Oh, Lord, search me, know me. You know when I sit, you know when I rise. Search me, try me, know my anxious thoughts. And God says, oh, but you did. But he's so gracious with Sarah here. It's a gentle rebuke here because he connects the omniscience of knowing her sin to this promise. And here it is. Nothing is too hard for God in scope, in timing, or in... He repeats the promise, even again for Sarah's sake here. He repeats it again. That he has set the scope and the timing and the absolute magnificent wonder of it all. Look at verse 14. He said to her, is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, the time and scope here, I will return to you about this time next year and Sarah shall have a son. There's an appointed time. Next year, I I guarantee it, you will have a son, 99-year-old Sarah, 100-year-old Abraham. Can you imagine? I I, I mean, it's just the image of a a 99-year-old woman with a a swollen womb. Now they lived a bit longer still at this time, but still, by uh, admission of the text, they were beyond years. It would have been a really astounding, incredible sight. A point in time, you'll have a son, Isaac, which you remember means what? Laughter, laughter. And then you know what, Sarah? You will really laugh. You will laugh, giggles of joy and delight, with the son that comes. There seems no way, doesn't it? There seems no way. It can not happen. Mary said to the angel, "How will this be? I'm a virgin." Is anything too hard for the Lord? Anything. If he has the omniscience of all things, as he did with Sarah, ah, but you did laugh, doesn't he also have the omnipotence to accomplish all things? He does, and he will. And the realities of these truths in that moment must have transformed Sarah's life. Ah, the first time she felt the baby kick. First time she felt it? you got to be kidding me. (laughs) And we don't want to leave her in this state of unbelief. It's not fair to Sarah. Hebrews says this about her. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful, him to accomplish, him faithful who had promised. Therefore, because of that, from one man, and him as good as dead too, that's a funny way to say it, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. By faith, life was born inside her. By faith, the unthinkable would happen. In my faithful, all-powerful God, he's promised it, then he will do it. That's what they thought. And that's what they believed. And that's the point of this passage not just the hospitality. This is the point. Is anything too hard for God? Nothing. What seems more unlikely, more unlikely than even what this, that dead spiritual hearts will be brought back to life in faith? What is more impossible? What seems more unlikely? You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but Ephesians says, but God. Is anything too impossible? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were, I mean dead, not mostly dead, really dead, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, and that's the definition of grace. You were dead. By grace you've been saved, Paul says there. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So here's what that means this week. In the middle of all this turmoil, if nothing is too impossible for God, then here it is. All of this means we don't need anything bigger to believe in than that. You don't need anything bigger to believe in than that truth right there. That's what God is telling Sarah and Abraham with the rhetorical question. Is anything too hard for God? we got to talk about this this morning as we close. I would be not a very uh, attentive or responsible pastor if I didn't talk a little bit about the events this past week in the context of, is anything too hard for God? I think it's an appropriate application this morning of that question. I think it was timely that God gave it to us this week. That's what God was telling Sarah and Abraham believe that nothing is impossible for God. So many were believing now. We're using the term belief, really strong word, this past election cycle. We're going to talk about both sides. But one side was believing that if we can just elect President Trump, we can stem the tide for four more years. And there was belief. There was belief centered in that. And belief now I'm not just saying a vote. Belief, belief is what causes you to scale the Capitol building. Not just a hope or a vote. Belief. Fervent, converted, disciple-like belief gets you up on the wall. But what were those com- people converted to? Something. Something was converting. Or maybe when the promise slips away and, and you're left with no hope, when it's belief, you get that kind of response. Well, the rest of the country is believing, was believing. If we can just get Biden elected, oh, things are going to return to some semblance of what normalcy might have been. And they, they would say, well, maybe no more craziness. Well, well, we're going to see how that goes, aren't we? We're going to see how that goes too. It shouldn't be a surprise to us that as belief in God lessens as a whole, that we don't believe anymore that there's a God for whom nothing is impossible, is it any surprise that as that belief decreases, the political fervor and fallout over elections is increasing? Of course not. They go hand in hand. When you take away God... For whom nothing is impossible, all you have left is the, other, the next highest power, which is politics. And so it becomes supreme. And that's why we have to talk about it this morning. Because after God, in most of our lives, the next greatest power tends to be our government. I don't have the power to arrest you, you know, or tax you. Thank God I don't. I think there is going to be, and I want to speak with all humility this morning, right alongside you, as not only a Christian disciple, but as a a citizen as well, but I think there's going to be a a little bit of a reckoning for the evangelical conscience post-President Trump, and I think it's actually going to be an opportunity for us. I think it's going to be an opportunity. I am not saying this morning, please hear this. I am not saying this morning who you should or shouldn't vote for in past elections or going forward. I'm not even pointing fingers even at individuals or Bethany Church this morning as we talk, we're going to talk for a minute about Christian nationalism. I'm talking church wide, larger church here. So no reason to take this personal this morning unless the Lord convicts you personally. It's clear as a whole, though, that the American church has a problem to deal with. And none of us, none of us could have predicted what happened this week. But what I am saying going forward for us to believe in the God for whom nothing is impossible. You don't need to believe now in anything bigger. We have to live like we have bigger things to believe in. they got to see that. We have to see that amongst each other. We've got bigger things to believe in. A God for whom nothing is impossible. And I really do think now, I really believe this. The American church as a whole now, I'm not just pointing a finger at Bethany. I'm not pointing a finger at any of you. I'm saying the American church though as a whole needs to examine our hearts going forward the blending of Christianity and politics in our nation. I know this is sticky. I know this is really hard for most of us. But I think it's an opportunity, and I can't let us miss it as your pastor. I'm sure some of you saw the crosses on the Capitol Square Maybe you saw the Apostles' Creed being recited inside the Capitol building by those who had illegally entered. I know none of you did that. I know we weren't there. Or maybe you saw the Jesus signs being right, put right next to the signs for president. Maybe you saw the giant painting of Jesus with a MAGA hat on. That's not Christianity. And I'm not saying any of you think it is, but the larger church has got to look at this because the culture out there thinks that that's what we think Christianity is. That's what they think. I'm not saying you think that today, but that is what the world at large thinks, that that is what Christianity is, is coming to. We don't want that to be the message, right? That's not Christianity. That's a form of what we might call Christian nationalism, which is really idolatrous, what is it? It's really a hard term to define. It really is. But it's, let's give a couple simple definitions if we can. Christian nationalism is when the nation and the nation's prominence, so let's think our nation now, America, in God's working and redemptive history, takes precedence over all else, that we would think that there's no way God, there's no way God can do this thing without America being out in front. We must have a prominent role in the final days. And most pastors, most people, I mean, you can't really get that from the Bible. You can stretch and pull some things, but we got to be careful. Because it might be likely that we have no place out in front in the final redemptive days. It would be nice. It would be nice to be used by God in big ways in the final days. Maybe we will. We shouldn't guarantee that to people. Or another way to look at Christian nationalism is this, is to communicate that being a Christian is a good thing, but being a strong American Christian is even better. When we communicate that our uh, political commitment makes us a better Christian too, that's Christian nationalism. Or let's say, here's another way to try to make it as simple as possible. Let's say you found out a real true fellow believer had a less than favorable view of our president or our nation, would that make them less of a Christian in your eyes? How about this? Here's another one. If you hear me talking about this right now and you're thinking, you know what, I don't want to be part of this church. If that's the view they're going to have, that might be, it might be a bit of Christian nationalism. That's Christian nationalism. I've got an article out there on the counter, snack counter this week. You might not agree with all of it. That's okay. I don't expect you to agree with everything we put out. But I think there's some probing good thoughts in there for you. There's a difference. Let me say this now. There's a difference between modern Christian, or excuse me, moderate Christian patriotism, which can be good, which can be healthy. We're called to support our leaders and our nation as Christians. That's good and right and healthy. But there's a difference between that and what we saw Wednesday in Christian patriotism. There's a difference. One's okay, the other's not. One is harmful to the gospel, the other's not. I think Wednesday's going to come back, if I'm being honest with you, I think it's going to come back to bite the church a little bit in the near future. You don't have to agree with me this morning. You don't have to. But what I hope we can all agree on is that we may grow in wisdom now going forward through this to see that no leader, regardless of party, but Jesus should have our greatest allegiance. No leader, no person but God has bigger things to believe in now. You've got to vote. You've got to be a citizen. But believe in. God. Believe that God can do the impossible. That's what he told Abraham and Sarah. Believe that God will sustain you individually and sustain us as a church through this next season, which I think is going to be, I think it's going to be harder for us. We're going to need each other in more ways than we ever have. Believe that it actually doesn't eternally matter who is president. Temporarily, sure, it matters. Eternally, no, it does not. How about personally now? You're listening to the words today. Not politically now. How about personally? Believe that even like Sarah, if you've got hidden junk inside your heart, sin like the laughter at God in your heart, you are not beyond God laughing over you in love and Rejoicing. And finding forgiveness in Christ. Believe as we leave today, wherever you're at any of this stuff, believe this at least when you go today. Nothing is impossible for God. You pray with me. Oh Christ. Messiah, King of all, ruler of all. Each and every one of us is struggling this week with anger, with frustration, with confusion. But God, you're not a God of confusion. Let each and every one of us, you know the laughter of our hearts, you know the state of our hearts, take the words today, whatever somebody doesn't need to hear that I said today, let it fall away. Whatever I did or your word said today, Lord, that each and every one of us need, by your spirit apply it in that unique way. Let us extend grace to each other these next few weeks as we all grapple with this. What does it mean to be a modern Christian patriot versus what might lead us into idolatry, Christian nationalism? And may the church be stronger with this opportunity going forward. For the name of the gospel we pray, Christ's name, amen.